0: Please be aware, the stories, theories, reenactments, and language in this podcast are of an adult nature and can be considered disturbing, frightening, and in some cases, even offensive. Listener discretion is therefore advised. Welcome, heathens! Welcome to the world of the weird and unexplained. I am your host, Nicole Delacroix, and together we will be investigating stories about the things that go bump in the night. Monsters lurking under your bed, or deep in the forest. That unknown creature lurking just out of sight. Frighteningly imagined creatures, ghosts, supernatural beings, and even some unsolved mysteries. So, You guessed it, sit back, grab your favorite drink, and prepare to be transported to today's dark enigma. And on today's dark enigma, well, it's almost time for the holidays, so before I break out with the Saturnalia, I thought we might try a little crypto, as in zoology. (laughs) So with that said, we will still be playing our drinking game, and as you know, The drinking game is only for those of us that are at home and have nowhere else to go tonight. The choice of libation, as always, my darlings, is yours, so choose your poison accordingly. Alright, now for the game part. How about every time I say mermaids, mermen, or mer-beings, that will be a single shot, and every time I say creature, that's going to be a double shot. All right, now that the business end is out of the way, we can jump headfirst into today's dark enigma. So don your best beach attire and grab a life vest as we dive into today's offering of encounters on the high seas with mermaids, mermen, and the Orang Ekan. George Brisbane Scott Douglas was the author of books like Scottish Fairy and Folk Tales, and New Border Tales. He was somebody with a deep fascination for mysteries of the oceans, and particularly mermaids and the far less mentioned mermen. He said of mer-beings that there were many strange tales emanating from Scotland's Shetland Isles. Beneath the depths of the ocean, according to these stories, Douglas said, and I quote, an atmosphere exists adapted to the respiratory organs of certain beings, resembling in form the human race, possessed of surpassing beauty, of limited supernatural powers, and liable to the incident of death. They dwell in a wide territory of the globe far below the region of fishes, over which the sea, like the cloudy canopy of our sky, loftily rolls, and they possess habitations constructed of the pearl and coral productions of the ocean. Having lungs not adapted to a watery medium, but to the nature of atmospheric air, it would be impossible for them to pass through the volume of waters that intervenes between the submarine and supermarine world if it were not for the extraordinary power they inherit of entering the skin of some animal capable of existing in the sea, which they are enabled to occupy by a sort of demonical possession. Now, Douglas noted something that most people, having only a cursory knowledge of the merman-mermaid phenomena, would likely be completely unaware of. He acknowledged that although the traditional image was of a human above the waist and terminating below the tail and fins as a fish, that was far from always being the case. He explained that the most favorite form was actually that of a larger seal. And he elaborated, and I quote, Possessing an amphibious nature, they are enabled not only to exist in the ocean, but to land on some rock, where they frequently lighten themselves of their sea dress, resume their proper shape, and with much curiosity examine the nature of the upper world belonging to the human race. Unfortunately, however, each merman or mere woman possesses but one skin, enabling the individual to ascend the seas. And if, on visiting the abode of man, the garb be lost, the hapless being must unavoidably become an inhabitant of the earth. Douglas was someone who was deeply familiar with the lore for mer beings, but someone who collected a number of fascinating accounts of encounters with what appeared to have been rather incredibly real half men, half fish-like entities. And I have an example for you from Douglas, and I quote, A story is told of a boat's crew who landed for the purpose of attacking the seals lying in the hollows of the crags at one of the stacks. The men stunned a number of the animals, and while they were in this state, stripped them of their skins with the fat attached to them. Leaving the carcasses on the rock, the crew were about to set off for the shore of Papa Stower when such a tremendous swell arose that every one flew quickly to the boat. All succeeded in entering it except one man who had imprudently lingered behind. The crew were unwilling to leave a companion to perish on the skerries but the surge increased so fast that after many unsuccessful attempts to bring the boat close in to the stack, the unfortunate Wright was left to his fate." Douglas continued, detailing how things quickly developed in a strange and unforeseen fashion as thus. A stormy night came on, and the deserted Shetlander saw no prospect before him but that of perishing from cold and hunger, or of being washed into the sea by the breakers, which threatened to dash over the rocks." At length he perceived many of the seals, who in their flight had escaped the attack of the boatmen, approach the skerry, disrobe themselves of their amphibious hides, and resume the shape of the sons and daughters of the ocean. Their first object was to assist in the recovery of their friends, who, having been stunned by clubs, had while in that state been deprived of their skins. When the flayed animals had regained Their sensibility. They assumed their proper form of mermen and merwomen and began to lament in a mournful lay, wildly accompanied by the storm that was raging around, the loss of their sea dress, which would prevent them from again enjoying their native azure atmosphere and coral mansions that lay below the deep waters of the Atlantic." The chief lamentation of the Burman, said Douglas, was for one Oliventanus, the son of Gyoja, who, having been stripped of his seal skin, would be forever parted from his mates and condemned to become an outcast inhabitant of the upper world. Their song was at length broken off by observing one of their enemies viewing, with shivering limbs and looks of comfortless despair, the wild waves that dashed over the stack. Geoja immediately conceived the idea of rendering subservient to the advantage of her son the perilous situation of the man. She addressed him with mildness, proposing to carry him safe on her back across the sea to Papa Stour, on condition of receiving the sealskin of Olivantanus. A bargain was struck, and Geosia clad herself in her amphibious garb, But the Shetlander, alarmed at the sight of the stormy bane that he was to ride through, prudently begged leave of the matron, for his better preservation, that he might be allowed to cut a few holes in her shoulders and flanks in order to procure, between the skin and the flesh, a better fastening for his hands and feet. The request being complied with, the man grasped the neck of the seal and committing himself to her care, she landed him safely at Acre's Geo in Papa's Tower, from which place he immediately repaired to Skio at Hamna Vo, where the skin was deposited and honorably fulfilled his part of the contract by affording Geoja the means whereby her son could again revisit the ethereal space over which the sea spread its green mantle. But, Mer-beings have been present in folklore throughout the world since practically as long as folklore has been around. Yet, as much as the idea of half-human, half-fish beings may sound like mere flight of fancy, there are numerous reports of real-life sightings and encounters with strange mer-beings from all over the world. Such accounts suggest that something very much like the mermaids of lore could be somehow real, but does this fit in with our reality or not? Is it all undeniable that half-human, half-fish beings or creatures are a recurring theme around the world and across cultural divides, and that they seem to have a very real place in the world of the strange? Perhaps some of these cases are worth looking into and that's where I started today. Weird cases of mere beings come from far-flung corners of the world with some coming from places you may have never even heard of. During World War II, amidst the fighting that was quickly flaming across the Pacific, there is a very interesting case that was reported by Japanese soldiers from the Key Islands of Indonesia in 1943. The Key Islands, also known as the Kai Islands, are located in the southeastern part of the Maluka Islands of Indonesia. The Key Islands cover a total area of around 555 square miles and are famous for their pristine, beautiful beaches and unspoiled sceneries. It was in this gorgeous island paradise of postcard perfection, pristine white sand beaches, that a most peculiar and mysterious case of real mere beings occurred. In 1943, Japanese soldiers stationed with a surveillance team on a small remote island within the Key Island chain reported seeing strange creatures in the water that were said to have limbs and a face somewhat similar to a human, but a mouth like a carp, filled with needle-like teeth. These bizarre creatures were described as typically being around 150 centimeters tall and having pink or salmon-colored skin, as well as prominent spines or spikes of some sort on their heads or even their necks and shoulders. These strange beats were not really keeping with the image of what a mermaid should look like at all. And unlike the more classical mermaids, these mer-beings were not described as attractive maidens and did not have holy fishtails, but rather possessed two long arms and two prominent frog-like legs, both of which ended with a wicked talon. On several occasions, these beings were seen cavorting about near beaches or most commonly in lagoons. In one case, two of these odd creatures were spotted playing in a lagoon, and another was reportedly seen swimming near a beach in a manner similar to a human doing the breaststroke. One report was told by a startled soldier who recalls seeing one of the creatures on a beach late at night. At first, the soldier had thought it was a child until it turned around and he could see in the moonlight that its facial features were just not quite right. The creature quickly ran headlong into the water upon being seen and did not resurface. They were allegedly able to get around on land to some degree with another soldier claiming to have seen one running about on the sand at dusk, seeming to be looking for something. However, they were claimed to be most at home, in the water, through which they were able to deftly and agilely dart and zoom with ease. There were even reports of the troops stationed there engaging with the the creatures one patrol of Japanese soldiers claimed that they had slogged through a thicket of underbrush to come upon an isolated lagoon. At first, things seemed as serene and peaceful as most scenes on the quiet island, but then there was a sudden thrashing in the water. Thinking it was some sort of large fish, the curious soldiers looked on to see what would happen, trying to peer through the sun-speckled surface to see what sort of fish could be causing such a commotion. As they squinted and gazed at the water, a strange being lurched out from beneath to pull itself up onto a rock outcropping. It was described as being pinkish in color and having ape-like features, only it was completely devoid of hair and possessed an oversized mouth like a fish with arms that ended in webbed hands and claws. I'm just going to say if you're visualizing this, ew, right? Anyways, the creature quickly turned to the soldiers gawking on the bank and reportedly let out a gurgling burping noise that the troops did not translate as being particularly friendly. Soon after, another could be seen making its way through the water towards them in a purportedly elegant, smooth fashion as fast as any fish. The speed with which it approached was startling, and those claws weighed on each of their minds. As the second creature silently darted towards them, the one on the rock continued its background symphony of gurgling, throaty coughing noises, and the men began to fire at them. The water erupted in spouts of water, kicked up by bullets, and fire was directly towards the rock as well. But shortly after this barrage, the creatures disappeared, leaving the baffled troops there amidst the jungle noises wondering what the hell was it that they had just seen. Another bedraggled and exhausted soldier who had taken a break near the water to pour some over himself and cool down reported that as he opened his skin, He saw staring back at him the face of a horrible monkey thing with a fish mouth and spines like a sea urchin protruding from the surface not three feet from him, exuding a terrible fishy stench. He immediately fumbled for his sidearm and unloaded it at the terrifying thing, but whether he hit it or not remains unknown. When his panicked, blind firing was done, the creature had sunk beneath the water and vanished. Other soldiers, while not directly encountering the beasts, often saw them lying on secluded beaches or swimming languidly about. At least one soldier claims to have seen one catching fish and stuffing them into its gaping mouth. They were most frequently sighted in lagoons, not typically near the sea itself, though. Although the Japanese soldiers were deeply perplexed by these sightings and encounters, these creatures were not unknown to the indigenous people of the islands. When asked about them, villagers in the vicinity told the Japanese that they were known locally as the Orang Ikan. In Malaysian, Orang means human and Ikan means fish. So we have something akin to manfish as the name. The villagers said that they were often seen about the islands and were sometimes even caught in nets. They were said to mostly keep to themselves and that they were fiercely territorial and would attack if approached too closely. Indeed, the creatures were feared but seen as a fact of life, and the Japanese were informed that if another was captured, they would be told so that they could see for themselves close up. Well, one evening the sergeant of the surveillance team, a Mr. Taro Horiba, was summoned by the chief of the nearby bil- village, and it was announced to Horiba that an Oring Ikan had been found dead on the beach earlier that day and that the body was available for viewing. The sergeant somewhat skeptically made his way towards the hut, where anxious villagers were gathered, looking as if they were scared of something. Big surprise. The Japanese sergeant found himself wondering if he really wanted to see what was in that hut and come face to face with what was frightening these local people so much. Nevertheless, the rational part of him assumed that there would be some mundane explanation that he would find an explainable answer within. Hariba would be dumbfounded by what he was to find sprawled out upon the grass laid out in the chief's home. Horiba described the strange, dead creature he saw laid out there as being around 160 centimeters long and possessing a head of red-brown shoulder-length hair, although it was sparse and patchy, as well as spines along the neck. The face was said to be quite ugly, with a combination of human and ape-like features, a low, short nose, a broad forehead, and small ears. The lipless mouth was wide like that of a fish, specifically described like that of a carp, and filled with tiny, sharp, needle-like teeth, which were mused to be perfect for grabbing and holding prey. The creature's fingers and toes were long and webbed, and ended in translucent claws. Hariba also reported that there was some sort of algae attached all over its body, which gave the body a greenish cast in some places. The stench of the beast was said to be horrific, like a mix of rotting fish and fetid meat, an absolute assault on your senses. Sergeant Hariba, although having sighted the Orin himself on several occasions, but from a distance, and doubting what he had seen, could not fathom what it was that he had witnessed so closely at the chief's home that night. There was no known creature residing on the island that could have po- possibly accounted for the strange dead humanoid creature that he had witnessed, and the sight of the carcass deeply disturbed and unsettled him. Upon returning to Japan, Horiba told of his experiences and urged zoologists to go investigate the phenomena, but nobody took him seriously. The fact that he had taken no photos, well, didn't really help his cause, and in the end, he was mostly ridiculed. So, what is it that these soldiers were seeing? What was that carcass at the chief's house? Could there have been a real animal behind this case? The local villagers certainly seemed to think so. So, here we have a classic case of an ethno-known animal, meaning that it's known to the locals, coming to the knowledge of a baffled outsider. It doesn't appear that these mysterious mer-beings can be merely attributed to the wild imaginings of the foreign Japanese in a strange land during wartime under harsh conditions, especially with the number of sightings made by more than one witness. There's really no hard evidence available. But let's take a moment to explore some possibilities. Many Merbeing sightings have been attributed to misidentifications of dugongs or manatees. Dugongs, although rare, were once found all over the Indo-Pacific, and could very well have existed in the areas of these Indonesian sightings. However, it seems unlikely that dugongs could be the culprit behind the reports of the Oring Ikon. Dugongs do not have two arms or two legs, like the Oring Ikan was reported to have, and it doesn't seem that a dugong's face could be misconstrued as being all that human like. They are also not known for their agile, speedy swimming or maneuverability, which is a hallmark of Orang Ikan reports. Villagers would also have likely been able to make a distinction between any dugongs in the area and a merbeing. It was most definitely not the body of a dugong that Sergeant Horiba described seeing at the village chief's house, nor a dugong that had crawled up onto a rock to threaten soldiers. A dugong seems to make for a poor candidate in explaining this phenomena. So what else could this strange creature have been? Well, while pondering this, you can't help but notice the resemblance between the Orang Ikon and some other types of aquatic ape-like beings that have been reported elsewhere. The Thetis Lake Gilman, that was sighted at Thetis Lake on Vancouver Island in 1972, for instance, seems to share some Orang Ikon characteristics, as does the Pugwis Mere beings of Native American lore. Pugwis and the Thetis Lake monster, like the Orang Ikan, are creatures that feature prominent spines or spikes on the head, two arms and two legs, rather than a fish tail, webbed fingers and toes, and generally appear to be an amalgam of ape and fish features. Could the Oreg Ikan reported by the Key Island natives and Japanese soldiers, have been a similar sort of creature to this other type of cryptid? One possibility is that all of these accounts have, been, have their basis in some sort of unknown primate that diverged long ago to adapt to an aquatic or semi-aquatic life. We could certainly expect such a primate to evolve some of the aquatic features mentioned in relation to the Aurig Icon, the Pugwis, and the Thetis Lake Monster. It is likely that an aquatic-adapted, ape-like creature would look more like these creatures than the classical mermaid image of a perfect human torso upon a perfectly fish-like tail. Although, I'm going to point out that nobody wants to, that mermaid. I'm just saying. I think Family Guy got it right. The fish should be on top and the human should be on bottom, but that's just me. Anyways. Although the idea that there were ever aquatic apes has largely been discredited, it is still an intriguing possibility to explain these types of reports. The particular location of the Orang Icon sightings also leads us to speculate on another possibility. The relatively recent unearthing in Indonesia of the fossils of Homo floresiensis, also known as Floresman or the Real Hobbit shows us that there was once a previously unknown type of pygmy hominid found there. It is not known what the specific range of Homo Florensis was, and it seems possible they could very well have inhabited another Indonesian island in addition to Flores Island. Is it possible that these Flores hominids were also present on the key islands and at some point adapted to a more aquatic habitat in this geographically isolated environment? It's possible. It is thought by some researchers that Homo Homo Florenceus may have had its small size due to island dwarfism, which is one possible adaptation to cope with limited resources in an island ecosystem it seems possible that such an isolated population could have adapted in other ways as well. Perhaps an isolated population of Homo florenceus on the key islands could have dealt with the same kind of geographical pressures by at least partially adapting a more aquatic lifestyle to take advantage of coastal resources there. Coastal areas provide rich potential for food resources, so it doesn't seem completely unfeasible that a primate or early hominid in a remote habitat could have perhaps evolved along those lines. It is certainly interesting to think about, right? Could an aquatic adapted population of Homo floresiensis or some sort of primate or hominid explain these Indonesian mer-beings? Or is it something else? Whatever they were, the orang Ikan presents a curious and little-known mystery that has never been satisfactorily solved. And of all the alleged mer-being sightings out there, this case of Japanese soldiers being startled during the war by such creatures on this remote island seems to hold a certain mystique to it. Whether it was truly mer-beings like those from folklore or not, or something else altogether, it certainly seems that something very weird was going on over there. Just what that was, well, we may never know. (laughs) And with that, my darlings, we have come to the end of the episode, and I thank you for joining me here today, and I hope you'll take some time to reach out to me and share your thoughts on what you think about today's story. You can always reach me and the show at darkenigmapodcast at gmail.com, and if you have a suggestion for a future show, you just want to tell me what you think, you have a discussion about whether the merbing should be fish on top or fish on bottom, or you just need somebody to talk to because you're lonely, drop me a line because I do reply to every single email. And on that note, my darlings, that is all the time I have for you this this evening, and I thank you for joining me here on Renegade Talk Radio, and, you guessed it, don't forget to tune in next time. And, just a little preview, because we're coming up on the holiday, I have a funny feeling that next week's episode's probably going to be about Christmas, or Saturnalia, or maybe I might just tell you some of my favorite Christmas stories. Either way. See you, my heathens. I love you. Mwah, 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 mwah. We don't sugarcoat shit. <laughs> this is Renegade Talk Radio. Renegade Talk Radio.